Let us pray. Eternal God, whose word silences the shouts of the mighty, quiet within us every voice but your own. Speak to us through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we may receive grace to show Christ's love in lives given to your service. Amen. The reading from today, for today, on this occasion of Palm and Passion Sunday, is from the Gospel according to Luke, the 19th chapter, verses 28 through 40, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And I invite you now to listen to the Word of God. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on emerging you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were there were sent away, and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, Already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. On the occasion of Palm and Passion Sunday, in my years of, now been many years of preaching, I've always wondered how what should I really emphasize the triumphal entry the Palm Sunday part or the Passion Sunday part the the fact that this is the beginning of Jesus's final journey to the cross and I've sort of gone both ways I guess um, in these years but I found a theme that I think ties together both the triumph and the tragedy represented by this day, this special day in the calendar of the church. Now, it certainly is Palm Sunday, and we are celebrating this wonderful, glorious, triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Um, But a shadow of Passion Week, we can already see, a shadow of what is to come, we can, or at least we can discern, because to set a little bit of context, this would have been an enormous crowd of people. It was, after all, the Passover week that was coming, And it was expected, it was a religious obligation that Jews who could be in Jerusalem for the Passover were supposed to be there. 
the normal population of Jerusalem would have been swollen far beyond its, uh, its usual numbers. There would have been literally hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for this event, this sacred time, this most holy time on the entire Jewish calendar, the celebration of the great Passover, the occasion in which God brought the Hebrews out of Egypt and eventually into the land of promise. Today, I'm wondering, possibly the pilgrimage to Mecca that the Muslims do would be comparable in the number of people involved. So we have that scene, and we have all these Jews, and many of them would have either witnessed or, or heard of the amazing works of Jesus of Nazareth. Others would not, or they would have been predisposed not to support Jesus, because the Pharisees and Sadducees told them not to. After all, the religious authorities and Jesus had a pretty bad relationship. There were exceptions, such as Nicodemus, but nonetheless, it's fair to say that those who were in charge, in human terms, of the religion were not supporters of Jesus and were frequently enemies of Jesus. And, as we also know, I think from the scriptural accounts, crowds could be fickle. When Jesus fed the multitude with enough bread and fish to satisfy thousands of people, starting miraculously from just a few small loaves and fishes, well, thousands of people would press in on him. But when it became time for him to start telling them some hard truths, as we saw in John 6, that's when most of them fell away. And so we have this enormous crowd, which is in a pretty celebratory mood. But here's the thing. Based on everything we know about what has happened in the Gospels and what will happen in the Passion Week, so many of those who were cheering Jesus on Palm Sunday would be calling for his crucifixion by Friday. And so already, even in the midst of this triumph, this triumph of the King of Kings, there is a foreshadowing an ominous foreshadowing of what will happen later on. Now, this is the theme that I think unites the various strands of this day, the kingship, the question of kingship. In his triumphal entry, our Lord revealed the kind of kingship that he and his father accepted. Jesus had been born a king in the line of David. And, of course, the wise men from the east came searching for him, asking, where is he... That is born king of the Jews. And that's from Matthew uh, 2 2. What does it mean for Jesus to be a king? Well, what's important to remember, or the first important thing to remember, is that Jesus did not accept every definition of kingship. He actually rejected every definition that was not God's definition. He rejected kingship on any terms other than God's. For example, Christ rejected kingship on the devil's terms. If we think back to the scene of the tempting of Christ in the wilderness by the devil, we know that the devil tempted Jesus by offering him all of the kingdoms of the world if he would simply fall down and worship the devil right then and there. Now, we know that the devil is a liar, 
And so one interpretation is that the devil had nothing to offer Jesus. But I think for it to be a temptation, the devil had to offer something to Jesus. And if we look at the state of the world today, and if we think of the state of the world through history, is it really that implausible to believe that the devil has such great influence over the affairs of men? I don't think it's difficult to believe at all. And so if the devil is saying to Jesus that he will hand over authority over the kingdoms of the world to him, I believe that was a real offer. And wouldn't it have been nice for Jesus if he could have done that? I mean, think, think of the alternatives. I mean, Christ came in order that the kingdoms of the world would give way to the kingdom of God. Where all of the manifest suffering and, and the injustices of the kingdoms of the world, or the, the governments of the world, you would say nowadays, have been wiped away. And people, so many people who have been unfairly, unjustly treated, who have been imprisoned, who have been persecuted, who have been murdered, that would all be wiped away. But for that to happen, for the ultimate triumph of the Son of God to happen, for the King to eventually have his whole authority over the world, in God's plan, Jesus would have to go to the cross. He would have to suffer. He would have to be rejected, he would be wrongfully accused, he would be abused, he would be tortured, and he would suffer an agonizing death, a criminal's death. And so the devil says, instead, instead of going through all of that, Jesus, you can receive the authority over all these kingdoms just by bowing before me. That's a pretty tempting offer. But as we know, Jesus did not accept the offer. It was in his father's plan. It was his father's plan for his kingship that he would undergo what he was to undergo. And so he rejected the devil's definition. It's also the fact that Christ rejected a kingship on his a kingship according to his disciples' definition as well. Now the disciples, needles to say, were much better meaning than the devil was, but nonetheless they also had the wrong idea about what kingship was really meant to be. At least kingship as God had designed it. Now we know that the Lord had performed many miracles. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He delivered people from demons. He fed the multitude. I already talked about that. Many of those who were following him, going back to that scene of feeding the multitude, many of those who were following Jesus wanted to take him and force him to become the king. Now, of course, that would not have meant that he would have been the king in godly terms. It would have meant that they wanted to put him in charge of a political and actually military movement in order to overthrow the existing political authority of the area. And that was, after all, Roman domination. What good Jew wouldn't want to be free of Roman domination after all? And look, they're seeing this Jesus, this amazing man who could make enough food for everyone out of almost nothing. Why would he not use that power in order to liberate his people in a way that they wanted to be liberated? But again, that particular understanding of kingship was not God's 
understanding of kingship. And by the way, one reason why people, many people turned against Jesus was because he rejected their understanding of kingship. It should be said, though, that Christ definitely demonstrated a kingly authority in many areas. And I think you all know that. Christ performed miracles in the realm of nature that revealed his authority over nature. And there are examples of that throughout the Gospels. He calmed a storm, for example. Nobody else could do that, but he did. He exercised authority over disease and brought health by a sovereign grace and power. Think of all the people who needed to be healed who were healed by him. The woman suffering from hemorrhages for years. The blind man. The man who couldn't walk. And I would dare to say, I don't like to speculate too much about what the Bible would say, but I do feel that it is safe to say that Jesus performed many more miracles than those that are recounted here in the scriptures. Indeed, the Gospel of John ends with saying that if all the deeds of Jesus could be recounted, the book would have no end. And so Jesus was always performing miracles. And by their definition, miracles are things that do not ordinarily happen. Jesus also exercised authority, kingly authority, over the demonic by delivering people from the tyranny of evil. He drove demons out of people. There were demons who were afflicting people, and he drove them out. I think one of my favorite scenes has to do with Jesus driving legions of demons out of a man, and so they go into a herd of pigs, and then the pigs all run over a cliff. Well, I guess that isn't very nice for the pigs, but better them than the man. And repeatedly... Christ exercised authority over the greatest adversary we have, death, by raising people from the dead. He restored life to Lazarus and not only to Lazarus. And so, more than anybody else who's ever lived, Christ demonstrated kingly authority. There's been no king or president or dictator who's been able to do the things that Jesus did on earth. But Christ came not just as the king with authority, but he also came as the king of love. In his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, our Lord was deliberately asserting his spiritual kingship and his messiahship. He was fulfilling the prophecy recorded in Zechariah 9.9 that the king would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He rode into Jerusalem not on, say, a war charger like the triumphal uh, kings or emperors of Rome would do, but rather on a donkey, a humble animal, but which in that day and time was a noble beast. And this happening was a part of the coronation ceremony of Israel's kings. In other words, that the king would come in on a donkey. And one of the themes in my preaching over the years that I've tried to emphasize is the close connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament, between Jesus Christ and the history of Israel and the prophecies of the Jewish people. 
And so again, Jesus is demonstrating that by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He is showing that he is not a king in the terms of, say, the Romans. He is rather a king who is doing what God set kings out to do in the Old Testament. He is being a true king in terms of God. Now, our Lord was deliberately asserting his kingship in his position of unique significance and at the same time, a time of great danger. The plot to kill Christ was already underway. And so what Jesus did required divine compassion and fearless courage. And so he showed himself in Jerusalem at the time. The safe thing to do would have been to retreat to the wilderness. He had enough sympathizers who could have hidden him. Maybe he could have said to himself, maybe I won't do it this year. Maybe I'll wait. Let things calm down a bit. It wouldn't be prudent to go into Jerusalem now. But he did, knowing what was at stake, knowing the danger to himself. And so Christ's asserted kingship was one of love and of the peace that grows out of love. This action of Jesus Christ was a final appeal for understanding and acceptance by his people, the Jewish people. Now, we also know, based on the events of Holy Week, that nonetheless Christ was rejected as king. His enemies accused him of being a king in revolt against Caesar. Now, we know that the Bible says that was not the kind of kingship that Jesus aspired to, but it was a useful rhetorical trick, or it was a useful attack to make on him. Pontius Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Well, the enemies of our Lord wanted him, him, Jesus, to be out of the way. They falsely accused and maligned him in every possible way, and finally he was condemned to the cross. In sarcasm, although again, as it's been said about Pontius Pilate, he spoke more than he knew, Pilate had his accusers place a sign on the cross saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, those who hated Jesus, those who wanted Jesus to die on the cross, they resented this wording, and they wanted Pilate to remove it, but he did not. And again, those words spoke a truth, even though it was unintended by those who placed them there. And so, to conclude, Christ was indeed born to be a king. He demonstrated his kingship in many ways. He demonstrated them in miracles. He demonstrated them by sovereignty. He demonstrated them by love and courage. He demonstrated them in ways that earthly kings could never hope to match. God then announced the kingship of Christ in a very irrefutable way, and that was to raise him from the dead and to exalt him to the position of utter supremacy. That is looking forward to Easter. And the fact is that when it comes to kingship, God does intend that every knee shall bow And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, as quoted in Philippians 2.
And so for, for us today, here is the challenge, or the request, as you might want to put it. Make Jesus Christ the King of your heart. Not just for a day, but forever. Give him the key to your heart. Give him control over your attitudes. And as an aside, I know how very hard that is. I know how hard that is. Let Jesus define your ambitions. And again, I know from my own experience how hard that is. When you make him king, when we make him king, he becomes truly the source of our peace and our joy. As the uh, Christmas carol says, let earth receive her king and let us receive our king now and forever. Amen.